HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at comté-usa.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. Hello, everyone. I am Carlos Descas, and for this episode, we're talking about one of my favorite topics, Romano cheese. What is it and what is not? I must confess that since leaving the Old West Cheese Coalition last November, my engagement with the political conversation in the U.S. around Romano cheese has diminished. I am aware of the continued pressure New York State raw milk cheese makers have and renewed efforts by the FDA and the CDC to limit even further our right to choose raw milk cheeses. This is not a new story, but increasingly I feel like we have lost a battle, if not the war. That's why today we are looking at the bay world of unpasteurized, thermalized cheese. Before we go into this conversation, I want to say that I do agree with Trevor Warmenthal, aka Milk Trekker. He recently wrote in his newsletter that creating a hard divide between raw and pasteurized cheeses is perhaps the wrong approach when trying to support small cheesemakers and traditional cheesemaking practices on the ground. If you haven't read their newsletter, I encourage you to subscribe by following him on Instagram. I should mention that Trevor is the 2022 recipient of the DCTA, the Travel Scholarship of the Daphne Cephas Teaching Endowment. I am the current president of the DCTA, and I can tell you the organization is delighted with his proposal to document and further understand the world of traditional quaglands. During my tenure at all the Cheese Coalition. We encourage cheesemakers around the world to differentiate between raw, unpasteurized, and pasteurized milk cheeses. Our aim was to make clear to the consumer that there were different products and that each one has a place. We differentiated raw from unpasteurized because we understood that increasingly some producers are heating their milks to below pasteurization levels. There are many reasons for this, but I think it's a technical response to a policy question. 
regulators around the world have created a myth of danger around raw milk. But consumers still want the choice. Therefore, producers are being pushed and pulled from both sides. To bring the perspective of the producer, I have asked my friend Mariano Gonzalez to speak to me. He is currently the head cheesemaker at Grafton Billy's Cheese Company in Vermont. There, he makes some pasteurized milk cheeses, including delicious cheddars and a hard cow and sheep's milk cave-age cheese named Sheep's Hog that is my favorite. Mariano is originally from Paraguay and initially moved to the U.S. in 1987 and started working at Shelburne Farms. He briefly returned to Paraguay to set up a demonstration farm to develop a cheese industry there, but it ended up returning to California in 2001. He has worked with the USAID as part of the Farmer to Farmer program, helping develop the cheese industry in, in Central and South America. Bienvenido al show, Mariano. Muchas gracias por tenerme en tu show, Carlos. Es un placer. Thank you. <laughs> well, both our mother language, mother language is Spanish. Mariano and I will talk to, in English today. I hope one day we will have a show in Español. But for now, <laughs> we'll do this in English. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> so, thank you very much for having me in your show. And um, um, I'm so grateful to be here. Great. Thank you, Mariano. Mariano, uh, you and I have known each other for a long time. I've been to uh, visit the caves at Grafton, uh, in fact, uh, in the middle of the pandemic, uh, and I'm always uh, in awe of everything you do. Today, I want to talk about your uh, role in making those cheeses that are you making at Grafton, because you're making a uh, you, you have a very good quality of milk. You could totally be making raw milk cheeses, but still some of your cheeses are being unpasteurized, meaning that they're being treated uh, with heat treatment. So let's dive in and then we'll talk about you know, your experience, but I want to head this on. So what is your decision about, um, when do you make the decision that you're either gonna make raw milk or unpasteurized, meaning that you are going to be heat treating some of the milk? Uh, well, um, for making the decision of when we're going to heat treat the milk or not, um, it really de depends of um, knowing the milk source that we have. Um, we normally do not pasteurize any any milk. Um, everything is heat treated. And by saying that, um, we are basically uh, treating the milk to a very um, low temperature be, uh, below pasteurization so we can uh, just ensure um, the microbial content of the milk, it gets a little bit um, lower because we don't we don't produce milk for Grafton specifically. So we buy the milk from local small farms around the area where we are located and is a basically commercial milk. So we don't have a direct control of the milk. So in that scenario, we just decided to get the approach of thermalize the milk 
to a certain temperature where we are um, still be able to say it's raw milk. And so the the I understand the decision is made because you don't control uh, the milk. You want to lower the bacterial activity. Do you have a feeling that if you were making, uh, if you were producing your own milk, if, if Grafton was producing his own milk, would it be better to keep the, the milk to make your cheeses raw? Or would you still make this decision? Oh, absolutely. Um, when... Just let me go a little bit back in history. Sure. <laughs> uh, when I was in Shelburne Farms, um, a, a very small um, group of cow. So at that time, we were mil milking 100 cows, and we did have control of the quality and the milking practices and where the milk was produced. So we were... Um, controlling that with how the cow is sanitized, the diet of the cow, um, the environmental uh, aspect of the cow, where they're going to be, what pastures. And um, so the milk in there, we have extremely uh, high control of what the cows were producing, unless the cow was um, get some kind of uh, infections, but um, those cows were removed out of the herd and the milk that I was receiving there was completely uh, raw milk. So with that said, from the cheesemaker uh, perspective, you have a more, um, you are more, um, sure that you're getting a high quality milk, raw milk to work with, with very low um, bacterial or pathogens uh, in, in the milk. Right. So it is really about the the source of this milk. What was the case in, um, in, in California? Oh, in California also uh, was pretty um, the same approach that I took working with the Fiscalini family. Um, they were very um, open to change uh, some of the systems and some of the um, breed of cows. And um, they were very into produce high quality raw milk cheese. So the approach was similar in there. It would, um, all the milkers were uh, retrain and ensure that they follow uh, specific procedures in order to uh, minimize any contamination of the milk. Because as you know, Carlos, um, the milk coming out of the cows or sheep or any breed um, normally come free of contaminants. And most of the contaminants and to goes into the mill are from the environment where they are. So if you have a parlor uh, milk room um, which is not clean and um, and 
practices they are not sanitizing the other the cows and taking all those little um, steps or extra steps that makes a the day of milking a little bit longer but at the end you ensure the milk is safer so with that said uh, in california we have very uh, successful um, program in there to be able not to contaminate the milk environmentally um, for the milk that I was producing cheese with. Um, and it got to a point where if milk was so clean that I need to kind of allow a little um, <laughs> contamination to it so it can bring some character to the milk. <laughs> right. And this is very interesting I because I... This is something that is happening in in a lot of places. As, uh, you know, for example, in Switzerland, they use raw milk. They don't pasteurize it, but they also their m milk collection is so sanitary now that the microbial counts are going down and affecting the flavor. Uh, and so it's not necessarily that they're they're contaminated, but their their microbial flora is less active. Um, and, and is that what you were experiencing in in California as well? Yeah, exactly. Um, they got almost kind of, um, not to the point to be sterile, but um, we were trying to protect so much the milk, the, the natural microflora in the area, and can express a little bit of the terroir, uh, we say, um, it, it was not there. <laughs> so we kind of, it was like two steps forward, and we were forced to take one step back so we can you know, have the quality of milk that we want to develop the flavor that we need uh, into the final cheese. But all that is still um, was looking at the safe and the healthy, using healthy milk. Right. And so you talk about the, 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 the time that you spend in California as part also changing some of the ways that milk was sourced, retraining people and all this. Is that, you think, that the cost to invest in those changes, is that what is stopping other producers uh, from using, you know, from changing to raw milk? Or what would you say is one of the barriers to, to, keep, to, to keep the milk raw? I don't think so as any barrier. Um, to keep it raw. It's just you trying to ensure the quality of the milk you're using and any um, potential growth or any unwanted bacteria is there. So um, retraining, um, it doesn't make any more um, expensive the milk or um, any other extra steps. If you are committed to have a product that are safe for the consumer. Right. Uh, so this is really a, a, a two processes and you need to have that uh, retraining and work in the parlor to get uh, good milk. But is there something on the cheese make side that also needs to happen once you're receiving that raw milk to ensure that is not being contaminated then on the other side? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, one that you receive the milk, we um, normally take um, samples of the milk, so we ensure um, the how clean the milk is, and we work um, immediately on using the fresh milk. So um, the first step and the first uh, line of defense um, to protect the milk will be, you know, start the fermentation with bacteria. They will grow in the milk and over um, produce. So all their unwanted bacteria are not present in there. Right. But uh, you're still um, having all those um, lipases and enzymes and uh, normal bacteria. Um, they are present in the milk. They are very um, helpful for, for the cheese making. That's what you're trying to protect by inoculating the milk with certain bacteria and start the fermentation right away using nice fresh milk. Right, so it is also uh, maybe not a pressure, but it is a concern that you are using that milk right away to be able to 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 turn the best product. Yeah, in, in Children Farm and also Fiscalini, I was uh, trying to use the milk um, within an hour of being finished milk the cows. Well, that's really fast. <laughs> that's that's uh, uh, extremely fast and very um, make 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 the 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 work of the cheesemaker uh, in order to start the fermentation of the milk uh, much easier. Because uh, as you know, uh, any bacteria in milk, if it's not handling properly, those bacteria triple the counts and the way they multiply in the milk rapidly. So um, they triple every 20, 45 minutes. They can, you know, you have a environment that you have, let's say, um, aerobic bacteria you have in there on in, in the level of 1200 CFU. And that can very easily, if you don't, um, if you hold too long the milk, that can very easily double, triple in quantity, and then makes uh, the cheese making a little bit more uh, difficult. Right. And so in in Grafton, you don't have the control of the milk, but you are pretty sure that that milk is coming to you in a, in a safe way. And so you're the reason why you are on pasteurizing, I, you know, not pasteurizing, but heat treating, is because you have a sort of certainty that that milk won't be contaminated, but you also want to control the sort of microbial activity. Is that is that our first session of that? Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's, it's right. Um, we are our source or our source of milk um, here. We're working um, right now with um, around four specific farms that are producing Jersey milk and couple are mixed milk from different breeds of animals. Um, and but but even when you try to work very closely with the farm, uh, those are milk they are produced commercially. So 
um, the co-op in the region has to get the milk and sell it to us. Luckily, um, the co-op in Fiala, Vermont, they are willing to work with us so we can choose the milk that we want to receive. So that's, let's say, step one of trying to ensure the quality of the milk that we're getting. First, we know the farms, but we don't have to say any in their way of um, manage their herd or the feed that they have available for the cows. So we work with them in the term of the components and also the microbial um, counts that they have. But again, we have no control of that. And all depends of who's milking that day or different things. So the, the variables are so large, it's so hard to really um, ensure that you have a extremely high quality milk. So for that reason, we um, here in Grafton, we decided to heat treat the milk. So with the heat treat, um, you know, you're not killing everything, but at least you are reducing if there's any potential presence of any pathogens, because at the same time, like I said, I would like to use as fresh as possible. So when they pick the milk, probably is two, three hours from the time that they finish milking that particular day, um, and they bring it to me. But you have to also rely that the contamination can happen anywhere between the farm, the transportation, and unloading the milk into our own cooling system. So the heat treat is basically just to ensure that we can reduce certain amount of bacteria that are present. Still, if you use that kind of milk, you don't know what the real bacterial content in the milk is because you have to analyze the milk and do the incubation, the counts, and normally take 36 to 48 hours. So basically, we not knowing the type of milk that we have that day, we continue and make the cheese. And then if it's something went wrong, well, we need to analyze the cheese and see how the cheese it is. But it's a good measurement of safety um, to be able to heat treat the milk without destroying so many uh, components in the milk. I understand. Yeah, that's that's a good uh, way of, I, I would say, going at it because not only you have, as you said, all this contamination, but, or possible contamination points, but you also have, you know, the development of a microbial community that is doubling every, like you say, every half hour almost, um, you know, in, in counts. And so you end up with a milk that could potentially have, uh, you know, problems if it started with problems, uh, and then, but you don't know for, until thirty six hours later if if that's an issue. Is that yeah. is that um is there um from the side of the regulator? I know 
Vermont is not like New York in this sense, but it's in the side of the regulator, um, you know, a pressure to um, to either pasteurize or heat treat the milk, or is is it a sort of hands-off approach? Um, no, they don't have any any to say unless the type of product that you produce. If you're going to produce something that's going to be a fresh product of a very high moisture cheese and things like that, they might uh, enforce, um, like the law says, you know, if it's, you know, um, you were going to intend to sell the cheese before 60 days, you'd be make sure it's pasteurized. But um, here in Vermont, um, we have. Um, Luckily, a um, agriculture department that are willing to work with you in all uh, areas. So they, instead to um, prevent us from making raw milk, they're encouraged to do what is necessary just to make sure that the product is safe. So they allow us, of course, to, um, and they come and check all the equipment that we use for heat treatment. So um, we are very well um, supported by the state and, and here in Vermont. Good. All right. This feels like a good time to take a break. Uh, we will be right after the uh, voice of our sponsors. episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conté within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk, ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conté. Conté takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineurs on average, each wheel of Conté is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conte is the same. Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, every wheel of Conte is unique. Learn more about Conte, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conte-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E hyphen U-S-A dot com. Okay, and we are back. Uh, and right now with me, I have Mariano Gonzalez. He is uh, the cheese head cheesemaker at Grafton Village Cheese Company. And before the break, he was talking to us about 
cheese, uh, the, the process of pasteurization and heat treatment that he uh, knows. Um, we are going to shift a little bit of gears here, and uh, now I'm going to ask him specifically about what he's doing at Grafton. Uh, so, Mariano, can you tell us what types of cheeses are you making in, in Grafton, and you know what is um, I, the second question there is, which one is the one that you enjoy the most making? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, let me start a little bit with the Grafton Village Cheese Company is a subsidiary of the Wyndham Foundation. And the Wyndham Foundation is an organization who um, their mission is to support small communities and um, support small farmers and small businesses in the area here. And um, with that said, um, with all the cheeses that we make, um, we also uh, support a small uh, business when they have um, issues or they need to utilize their milk we produce cheese for other companies here and for other uh, nonprofit organizations. And we make a variety of cheeses, so mainly cheddars. We make uh, one year, two year cheddar. Um, we do some smoking, some flavors, um, and also, we utilize um, sheep milk from a small community of Amish that they are um, willing to work with us and provide us with uh, excellent uh, sheep milk so we can produce other uh, cheeses. For example, the ship sock that you, um, that you like yep. mm -hmm. is a mix of 50% cow's milk and 50% uh, sheet milk. We also make another uh, cheese that's 100% sheet milk and called Berry Hill. And it's coming very soon, another 100% sheet milk and a format of uh, three kilos that will be named uh, Storyteller. And we're expecting that cheese to be. Um, uh, very successful, especially uh, a storyteller. The name come from the uh, Daisy Turner is a black woman, uh, daughter of um, a, um, a slave. They move here in the area, and she used to tell stories about moving um, black people into the community escaping slaving. Um, so we are pretty excited about that cheese and um, it's coming pretty soon. And um, we also make some, um, like I said, cheeses for other company. Uh, it's a museum here in Woodstock, Vermont, Billings. Um, and they have a dairy farm to demonstrate uh, agriculture in Vermont and the excess milk that they have, we make cheese for them for, this, for their own store and museum. 
that's really cool. I didn't know about that cheese. I knew you manufactured some cheeses for other people, but didn't know that you were making that from that school. I guess that's an interesting uh, connection to what you uh, did or are still doing with the U.S. Um, aid and also what you tried to set up in Paraguay. Would you care to share with us about that experience? In Paraguay? Yep. <laughs> uh, sure. Um Sorry, I'm going to make me laugh a little bit because mm -hmm. there was a um, basically a dream that I have um, with my father um, where I learned cheese making. Um, we have a small farm in Paraguay. Um, so anyway, we decided with my wife and I, uh, after working in children farms, um, and that was a great program to kind of develop some uh, school and cheese making practices and to involve the community and, and the whole venture. We went to embark in this project and um, unfortunately uh, the time was not the right time. We went over there, we established, we started making cheese, uh, we're trying to develop the program, but then um, it was a coup. <laughs> yeah, and that's not a good thing to happen when you're trying to set up a new farm. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Um, it's very unfortunate because Paraguay is a country that uh, it needs a lot of help in order to develop. Uh, the dairy industry over there, uh, mainly is uh, dominated by the Mennonites. They have a big co-ops and they do produce their own product, uh, dairy. And it's almost unheard in Paraguay about uh, aged cheeses unless you import from Argentina or directly from Europe. So that was one of my goals, you know, kind of to introduce um, H cheeses in my country. So anyway, the cook came, the vice president got killed. President, you know, went to Brazil, escaped. Um, everything was uh, chaos and nobody knew what to do or, you know, trying, you know, having the army and the police fighting for power and things like that was not, an environment that I want to um, develop a business and um, allow my two daughters to kind of be exposed to another culture. And uh, that was not very good. Plus, during that period of time, with all the um, uncertain, um, the government or the whoever was in power that week, um, <laughs> my milk truck coming from the countryside and to the capital to be processed, um, they were thinking there'd probably be guns in there or any other type of armament. And um, they basically opened the valve of my truck and emptied my tank to see if there's any um, guns inside the tank. 
<laughs> well, <laughs> that must be the most intense moment to lose milk because someone thinks that you have guns in it. Yeah, and and then you have to bribe people and do many other things. What was not uh, part of my philosophy, and it got to a point where I was losing um, tremendous amount of money um, because you know you. In order to ensure your milk, you have to sign contract with the producer. So when you have a contract, you can go, you don't want to let them hang in there either. So I was paying for milk that I was not able to use. And it was just a catastrophe, basically. Right. And my wife and I and my two daughters, we decided to um, abandon that after three years and move back to the United States. I, I don't blame you. I, I, I think that that's a very difficult situation. And I think the U.S. cheese industry is much better for having you in there. Yeah, well, I'll tell you one thing. I, I never regret to do that because it's something that I want to try it. And I did it. I tried it. It wasn't successful, but, you know, I did try it. Um, it was more successful to work with the USAID and other countries and develop uh, different areas. And, you know, that, that whole combination helped me so much to lay it on, on my cheesemaking scales and making decisions. And, you know, I'm so, you know, much richer than what it was. <laughs> yeah. Can you share with us uh, a, a bit of that history, maybe one story of the time that you participated in the Farmer to Farmer program? Uh, yeah. Um, I was uh, basically invited by the uh, University of Miami to uh, enroll myself with the program of the Farmer to Farmer. So I went to develop... Um, they, is, they assigned me to um, work with a, a group of farmers in Honduras. And that was a very um, interesting uh, experience in, in the mean of um, how poorly regulated is um, in Central America the dairy industry. Um, so anybody does... Um, different products without really having much concern about the healthy of the product or the way it's making uh, products in, in some of those countries and, the, on, on, you know, on the rural level. So I went there and I met with this uh, fantastic group of uh, farmers that they were trying to create a cooperative because also the milk over there is um, like I say it's not regulated the way you transport the way you sell it and um, so that presents uh, numerous uh, inconvenience because you as a farmer you have your milk that you're trying to sell and then you are exposed to who's going to buy your milk and they don't have a price structure for the milk. So in many cases, they were not even making enough money to be able to feed the cows. 
and so my 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 goal with the um, farmer to farmer board to go and develop this small um, co-op and show them um, how to utilize the milk, how to treat the milk, and most importantly, how to add value to the milk. You know, making cheese or yogurt or any other different products. Um, but in the same time, you face um, a lot of um, challenges in there because they are not, they don't have the, the, the right equipments to be able to develop this, uh, except for making uh, home uh, cheese making or something like that. So we went there. Uh, it was a very good experience for both uh, myself and the group that I work with. So it was so well that the USID decided to send me back to do a follow-up and continuous develop uh, the program. That was nice. Do you know if that cheese is for sale now in the United States? I lost contact with... Uh, with them, um, basically, I at this point I don't have um, a contact info to see if um, how they um, continue develop because it was a certain other um, challenge in there. So they basically desire to stick with some uh, local products. Right. Like making what the, the people know, and instead of trying to make um, new products, they decide to um, stick with the, what the community likes. So they're still making some quesillo and some uh, fresh cheeses. That's interesting. And I asked because very recently, maybe three months ago, I was contacted by someone in Honduras saying that uh, they had product in the United States and they wanted to see if I could help them uh, find a distributor. So uh, anyway, oh. that's a, that's an interesting sideway there. Um, I think this is um, all the high time that we have today. I know that there's so much more to talk, but uh, we only have limited time in the show. I want to thank you, Mariano, for your time, for all your knowledge and sharing um, your, your experience with us today. It was a pleasure, Carlos. Anytime. Perfect. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.